I've often said that I wished people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Like many of you, I was concerned about going out into the world and doing something bigger than myself until someone smarter than myself made me realize that there is nothing bigger than myself. This from the one and only Jim Carrey, one of my all-time favorite actors, comedians, and epic humanitarians. So many of you know him as the funny man, the overly flexible goofball, and brilliant actor in so many movies and TV shows. But a select few know him as a deep, conscious, and very giving person. Today's guest, John Jolief, has been close up and personal with this amazing human for over 30 years, supporting Jim to co-create in ways he never imagined. In fact, he even married Jim to Lauren Holly back in the day. Pretty cool. Jim once approached John about building philanthropy into his life. John simply shared that there are two kinds of philanthropy, retail and wholesale. John asked Jim which one he wanted to do. He simply explained that retail is when you hand someone a check, and wholesale is when you roll up your sleeves and build something bigger. Jim wanted to play a big game, as he always has, and stepped up. His choice, rice production in challenged countries. More on this later. You could spend your whole life imagining ghosts, worrying about the pathway to the future, but all there will ever be is what's happening here and the decisions we make in this moment, which are based in either love or fear. So many of us choose our path out of fear disguised as practicality. What we really want seems impossibly out of reach and ridiculous to expect, so we never dare to ask the universe for it. I'm saying, I'm the proof that you can ask the universe for it. Deeper brilliance from Jim Carrey. I simply cannot share how much these words resonate. Do they for you? With over 40 years as a world-traveling therapist, syndicated radio host, and TV producer, John has come up with some brilliant distinctions. And as he says, he's not interested in helping the world, he's interested in changing the world. So let me ask you this. Could your experiences, especially negative experiences, simply be a thinking error? Could fear simply be a false belief and not real at all? Or check out this concept that today's guest brings to light there's a big difference between feelings and emotions. This really struck me as very powerful. I will leave it to him to share more. He believes in these five personal growth principles likely to promote rapid progress. Have a clear objective, maintain a realistic expectation of the progress you desire, be honest, don't wait for inspiration or motivation to start doing what you know you must, recognize the companion of your increased awareness is discomfort. There is a difference between feelings and emotions. Oftentimes we think we're having an emotional day when frankly it's just feelings. And I get it, some days suck. Sometimes we feel a lot and are not at our best. The key I know for certain is to feel them all fully. Feel all of your feelings and allow them through. So often we stuff them down and pretend they are not there. Maybe it's fear of rejection or fear of abandonment or fear of whatever. Pick your fear, I'm sure you know exactly what it is, as to why you are afraid to feel the feelings and allow others to know or see you experiencing them. Listen, if people in your life cannot handle you being sad or negative or whatever, they are probably not for you. In my humble opinion, we need people in our lives who can embrace all sides of who we are, the good and the bad. 
we have between 12,000 and 60,000 thoughts per day. And 80% of our thoughts are negative or fear-based. 98% of them are exactly the same as we had the day before. No wonder our experiences are what they are, right? We keep living out the same thing over and over and over. As Albert Einstein says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Think about it. Is ADD real? ADD or ADHD sure seemed like a real experience for me and so many others I know as well. Maybe even for you? As I shared on episode 15 with Jason Goldberg, I had dyslexia for years, but had no idea what the hell was going on. Struggling to focus, to read, to retain. Always a hyper guy pumped up on life, charging it wide open like when I raced motocross. Sitting or slowing down sometimes was so damn challenging crazy thing is, I wondered if I had ADD for years. Like I mentioned on that podcast, I changed my diet and found my purpose. And focus for long periods of time was not a problem. Being an entrepreneur helps a lot. If you are one, you know what I mean, right? There is great opportunity to keep many plates spinning. And for people like you and me, this serves us on so many levels. Benjamin Franklin said, tell me and I forget, teach me and I may remember, involve me and I learn. Get involved and figure out a learning style or business model that works for you. Another thing to consider, so many of these things we do to ourselves. Bad food choices, too much coffee, too much sugar, not enough healthy fat, not enough exercise. The list goes on and on. Also, think about it this way. Unfinished business is taking your focus. It's not a matter of not being able to focus. It's a matter of your focus being on something else some wound or pain or some passion or something else that's more exciting, John brilliantly shares about this in the interview coming up. Just know this, you'll become more focused than you ever have been in your life once you find that one thing or many things or plates that you truly want to spin. Please do not let another day go by doing something that does not totally fill you up. Yes, some aspects might seem tasky or redundant, but damn it, find something you love to do and be before it's too late. Life is short, and you will be old and gray faster than you know. Please, please, please say yes to that thing that is scaring you the most. And as Nike says, just do it. Face your dragon, take the leap, and break free. Welcome to the Face Your Dragon podcast, where we help you, a messenger with a mission, leverage your fear to amplify your voice in the world. On the show, we open up the concept that what you are most afraid of and most resisting are the very things that will set you free. With courage, with clarity, with contribution, you can have it all. This show will engage in deep, enriching conversation with thought leaders, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, icons, and regular Joes who have faced their fear and are now using it to create impact in the world. I'm Brad Axelrad, and I'll be your host. Our guest today literally blew my mind during our interview. Numerous times I experienced my paradigm shifting, old thoughts and beliefs being cracked open to new possibility. He likes to be introduced as a man named John. I will leave it there and say this. You will be nothing less than blown away by this conversation, I promise you. Normally I would insert accolades, credentials, and the like in this introduction, but as you listen and expand in this conversation, you will hear why I left it out. Enjoy. John Jaleef, it's great to have you on the Face Your Dragon podcast today. Welcome, my friend. 
Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's really, really an honor to be able to share whatever we're going to share today. And we were just talking about how we might challenge some of the past thought processes and and uh, dive deep into getting clear on, at least from your perspective, and I might add some brilliance to it or some ignorance, whichever it'll be, and uh, really curious to see where it goes. You know, I never think of challenging. I never think of challenging ideas or challenging people. It's just about sharing from different life experiences, you know. I have some philosophies that, you know, are disruptive in nature. They're, I like to say they're organically disruptive. The thinking that I have, it was more discovered by me than something that I intended. I, I don't really do much premeditation. You know, I, I was just pushing back a little bit on the idea of challenging some of your guests and friends and people like that. I appreciate that quote-unquote challenge already. <laughs> the non-challenge challenge. It's perfect. The challenge. I love it. So, so tell me, I'm certain you've, in your life, had some really neat opportunities to both face fear and integrate fear and uh, learn to use it in some situations. I mean, you did some work with National Geographic. It's amazing. Your background is incredible. I'm so curious to hear where you've had some instances that come to mind where you're really face-to-face -face with some of your darkest, deepest, stuff, whether internally or externally? Well, I think it's probably, on the onset, it's probably good to, to explain that for 40 years, I've been a therapist in the area of psychology, syndicated nationally on radio for 12 years daily, and then uh, in Southeast Asia for three years for four hours a day. So, you know, I bring to it kind of that clinical uh, working with people, whether it's thinking errors or fear-based decisions, you know, beliefs and things like that, people in pain. I've been doing that for over 40 years, both on radio, television, and in my private practice. I'm still in private practice. But I was early influenced by my travels uh, with the National Geographic. I was a tour guide for them for many, many years before I went into grad school. I'll give you one story. So we, we'd go into villages and we would have to stay in villages sometimes for a month, waiting for the bird or the animal or something to happen. And I wasn't the photographer. I was setting up camp. And I would get the native speakers, the tents, the camels, you know, the combis, the helicopters, whatever it would be. On this one occasion in, in West Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, I was uh, in my hut, kind of just waiting it out. And you know, I was a big guy. I played tackle football in college. Just a big, strong, young guy. And I wanted to help. And so I told my native speaker, I said, tell the chief I'd like to help, you know, maybe work in the agriculture, cut down trees, hunt, whatever it is, while I'm waiting. And so I waited and I waited. And one day the chief came with my native speaker and uh, asked me to come out. And I came out and he said to me through my speaker, he said, point the way to the future. And of course, I pointed in front of me. And then the chief said to my native speaker, point to the way of the past. And I pointed behind me. The chief uttered some sound and he walked off. And I never saw him again, ever. And so, you know, a couple of weeks went by and I asked my native speaker, what happened? I feel like it was kind of like a test that I didn't pass. And he said, yeah, you didn't pass. I said, well, what's wrong with Pointing the way of the future is forward and pointing the way of the past is behind me. He says, that's not the way we think. Indigenous people believe they can see the past by memory. So the past to them is in front of them. They can see it. And the future, which they can't see, is behind them. 
And so the chief said to himself, he said, if I can't trust him to know directions, how can I trust him with sharp objects? So I was early trained to think in some disruptive way to challenge perceptions, traditions, and things like that. And so you'll find that I no longer believe in enchanted ideas. Enchanted ideas are sometimes people call them false beliefs. But, you know, the idea that parents never lie, police can be trusted, preachers always practice what they preach. Enchanted ideas are all the reality that we can muster up when we're young and maybe vulnerable. But I no longer believe in enchanted ideas today. I don't believe in answers. I think answers assume complete understanding. And so who's so arrogant to believe they completely understand anything? I mean, take your favorite Bible verse, take a favorite poem, memorize it, come back to it in three years, five years, 10 years, and you're gonna get more out of it, something different. And that verse has not changed. You have. So I never trouble myself with answers. That means complete understanding. I don't believe in solutions either. Solutions are kind of like the cousin of answers. And if you have an answer and a solution, what do you need to collaborate with me for? I'm not looking for answers. I'm looking for insight. I don't believe in good and bad, I said. I don't believe in right or wrong. I don't believe in positive or negative. Those are all judgment. I'm trying to find out, Brad, what is true from what is false. That's where my focus is, true and false. All this other stuff, good and bad, right or wrong, positive or negative, they're all judgments. And I'm not here to judge. Glad you started off and, and, and shared that perspective. And I tend to uh, default, at least when I'm mindful enough to do so, to exactly what you're saying. I've, I've always struggled with religion, just to pick on religion for an, an example, uh, knowing where we came right. from and where we're going. Like, that's absurd to me. Like, I just, yeah. like, how, how could we possibly know? And I just think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm curious if you agree with this. But the ego latches on to something so that it can rest. It, it, it provides a little bit of rest. What do you think about that? I'm saying I don't believe in ego. Ego doesn't really exist. Ego is a, a thing that we use to describe something. Somebody who has a big ego, you know, is really a very small-minded, insecure. I, I like the word wound. I think the, the word ego is misplaced. I think it refers back to Freud and some of his mis misunderstandings. Uh, but I would use the word wound. And when we need validation, we probably have what we call big e egos. Yeah, but go ahead. Your point? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And um, I'm noticing as you're scrambling some of my thoughts and beliefs here that I'm opening up to what's next. And, and I'm curious. I'm becoming curious. Yeah. Yeah, that that feels really good. I'm experiencing the opportunity and the possibility in the in the inquiry. Just that yeah. there's something yeah. here. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me uh, you know, I went through your website and saw some interviews you had. There is uh, Miguel, Miguel Ruiz. He was on your program and he made a good some good comments. He said he's made it his whole life to work to help people become aware of their fear-based beliefs that hold them back from living their true potential. And I was saying there are fear-based beliefs need to be confronted because fear is very relative. Fear is one of the easiest things to overcome. i tell you another little quick story. I was, one day my phone rang and it was my association, my psychological association that I hadn't attended in 20 years. And so I thought I was somehow in trouble or I owed them money or something. Why would they be calling me? And they called me and they said, 
we would like you to come to our, our national conference and we'd like you to be the plenary speaker and we'd like to hear your, your famous and popular talk on fear. We'll pay you $1,500, round trip airfare, hotels, all this stuff. We'd just like to hear that. Would you consent? And I said, well, sure, that would be wonderful. It'd be fun to do. I hung up. My wife said, who was that? I said, well, it was my association and they want me to hear my famous talk on fear. She says, I don't know you had a, a popular famous talk on fear. And she says, I never did before, but I do now. That's awesome. So I went ahead and I wrote up all these things and took my time to think through what fear is and does it exist and the differences between phobias and fears. And uh, what are these fear-based beliefs? And I would say to you, Miguel goes on to say, the biggest fear that humans have is the fear of the unknown. And I'll tell you, quite frankly, through my 40 years of clinical experience, there's no such thing. It, it correlates with people who were as in childhood who were afraid of the dark. People who were afraid of the dark are often, as adults, afraid of the unknown. Now, you know, Brad, that there's no documented case in history where the dark ever hurt anybody. It's what's in the dark that we're afraid of. Isn't that true? It is 100%. You know, when I was building out the Fascia Dragon platform and message, I, I really wanted to get to some of these core philosophies here. And very simply, I'll, I'll share this quickly. I came up with the fear of public speaking, the fear of charging high fees, the fear of talking on camera, the fear of whatever it was, like a fear of editing video or talking on video, I mean, whatever it is. I said, that's not really what it is. It's not the fear of public speaking. It's underneath that. It's the fear of being found out as an imposter or fraud, or it's the fear of not having the right answer and being laughed at, right? It's underneath. It's the fear of who's in the audience. 100%. It's not the fear of public speaking. My sister, who's a songwriter, she's got a Grammy, a gold record, a platinum record. She wrote The Rose for Bette Midler. She got writer's block after doing that. And she asked me, she said, can you help me? I said, yeah, you got to look. You got to think about who's who's looking over your shoulder. So she uncovered that she was really afraid that she couldn't write a song that would be better than a platinum gold record and a, a Grammy. But it was a, a thinking error because she's written many things that are, I think, far, far more important than the Rose. But so he says the biggest fear that humans have is the fear of the unknown. And I'm here to say that the unknown doesn't exist. If the fear of the dark is really the fear of what's in the dark, then the fear of the unknown is what's in the unknown. It's what happens when you pick up the phone and make the call. It's the fear of the unknown. But when you know what's in the unknown that you fear, then the unknown no longer exists. It's the fear of the known. Now, you may be projecting what you think is in the unknown, just like you project what's in the dark. But there is no fear of the unknown. It's the fear of the known. If you take the time to confront it, it's the fear of what you think is in the unknown that you fear. Based on past experience, yeah, we're, we're projecting into the future a negative future experience or feeling. That's exactly right. So fear-based beliefs, they, they have to be uh, challenged, okay? They have to be challenged and they have to be uh, corrected. But fear-based beliefs are not as common or endemic as thinking errors are. Thinking errors are far more common than fear-based beliefs. Fears need to be confronted, asked questions. 
when you ask a question about a fear, it runs. Fears require to be sustained, that you live in denial, that you become so afraid that you never question, confront your fears. If you want to end fear, raise your suspicion. Once you raise your suspicion about what you fear, you name names, that fear will dissipate into a very manageable size. Fears to get out of control become phobias. A phobia is an unreal fear. If you could be afraid of what you need to be afraid of, you wouldn't have to develop a false fear or a phobia. We tend to focus on phobias because we're afraid of the real fears. Let me give you an example. So I told you I was syndicated nationally on radio. I get a call from, I've got lots of call stories. What, which one would you like me to tell you? They both emphasize the same thing. The woman who's afraid of crossing the bridge or the person who's afraid of spiders and bugs? Spiders and bugs. I'm in Costa Rica and those things are freaking everywhere. Okay. So a woman in Germany, I have an international practice, a woman in Germany, she comes over to talk with me and her and her husband stay in a local hotel the night before they come to see me. And she has a terrifying fear of spiders and bugs. She's absolutely immobilized. Her husband comes in with her and he says, last night she saw a spider in the sink and she had to kill it before she came to bed with me. And she says, can you help me? And I said, I think I can. Tell me about your family of origin, the birthplace of attitudes and expectations. Those powerful 18 or 20 years as uh, we're growing up in our families. She said, well, my mother and father were married, so we had an intact family. And my sister was four years older than I. We shared a bedroom, but we didn't share a bed. And oftentimes my sister would go out in the garden and get spiders and bugs and put them in my bed when I was sleeping and I would wake up and there they were. And I said, oh, so you don't have a problem or fear of spiders and bugs. You have a problem with your sister. What's up with that? Why would she do that to you? You probably couldn't trust her around boyfriends, sharp objects, or money in the drawer. You've got a problem with your sisters. Last time I looked, spiders and bugs didn't want to sleep with us. I said, here's the potential healing question. Tonight, when you go to bed with your husband, wherever that is in the world, and you see a spider and bug, ask yourself a question. Can I tell the difference between my husband and my sister? Because I don't think your husband does that. And if you had two sisters, could you tell the difference between the one who does that and one who doesn't? You see, it's a problem of differentiation, isn't it? So when we can be afraid of what we need to be afraid of, now that's manageable. Now, if you know it's your sister, now we can take action on that. Sleep in a different room. Put a lock on your door. You see what I mean? I really do. So a lot of the work I've done is, well, I guess you could call it family constellation, but family of origin work, you know, the Hoffman Institute, we, we spoke about that right. before. And a right. lot of the work is pattern tracing back uh, where you learn something, You're, right? You're either modeling or rebelling a parental behavior or there's some wounding or trauma that's creating this unconscious guarded or, you know, fight or flight response, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so curious to hear your take around positive and negative transference. Of course, you know what that is. I've learned it at Hoffman. It's got to be a, a psychology term. But can is there a lot of that happening in this scenario where, where they're sort of superimposing either the positive aspects of uh, mommy or daddy on someone else or the negative aspects of mommy and daddy on someone else? Is there transference or projection going on there? Well, yeah, and, and that's why I would I would probably have them kind of keep peeling back 
uh, I don't believe in positive or negative. So it's either true or false. Either something happened or didn't. So what was it specifically that happened? You know, so like, like, for instance, somebody might say to me, I hate men or I hate women. And I'd say, so what happened? And and I'm trying to find the name. Well, my mother or my father, they were abusive or neglectful or something. And I said, what was your father's name? George. Okay, you hate all men. Your father's name was George. And this is where it started. So let me give you some bad advice. Never marry, never befriend, never work for a guy named George. Now, that's bad advice, but it's better than the horrible advice you're giving yourself about hating all men. Because we didn't do that to you. Mm. Only a guy named George. So these ideas that we, you know, project all these positive, negative things, we need to be a little more honest about what we're thinking that we're projecting or we're anticipating or what what is it specifically and what's the name of the person that way you can narrow it down and deal with it fears can be dealt with but they have to be defined they can't be phobias which are unreal fears they can't be negatives and positives right and wrongs they have to be named once you name something you limit it are we limiting it how how are we limiting it explain that well, if, for instance, if you were to introduce me as the therapist, you would limit me. Do you understand? Yes. Explain. Well, that's just one aspect of who you are. And I think identif- identification is a slippery slope because it squelches out the possibility of a whole spectrum of other possibilities. That's exactly right. Because I'm also a father. I'm also an executive producer of a, a huge ch- children's show. I'm a syndicated broadcaster. You know, so which one are you going to pick? <laughs> That's why I like the introduction of a man named John. I'll tell you a little background on that. So, so I worked in the federal prison system. I, I, did, I specialized in serial killers I because I want to understand serial killers. I want to understand how that happens. How do you kill people over an extended period of time and live with yourself? I, I just wanted to understand there was some dynamic in that that I thought was important. So the warden one day was impressed and he wanted me to speak to the yard. So that's like 3000 prisoners. So he had a little stage. And so they, the warden asked me to write up a little bio so I could introduce me. And I put my bio together, what I'd accomplished, things I'd done, schools I'd gone to, all that. I put it together and I handed it to this prisoner who was going to introduce me. He walks up to the microphone and I never stopped to think for a moment he may not be able to read. And he struggled there, and then he gave me the best introduction I have ever had, and it's the one I prefer. He said, let me introduce you to a man named John. And the reason that that's profound is if he reads all these credentials and resumes of accomplishment and the like, and then I blow my talk, I got nothing to say, I do it so poorly, my resume is not going to save me. And if I do a great talk, inspire people. I don't need the introduction. I don't need the resume. My talk is the resume. So my preference, you know, I prefer to be introduced as a man named John because that doesn't limit me. Anything else that people might say might give people a perspective. Oh, I know him already. Such an interesting point, John. I've been in this conversation as of late 
challenging myself and others in not an identity crisis, but certainly noticing people who are in the gap between something and uh, commenting on that and noticing it in myself, the discomfort that comes from, uh, or the comfort and discomfort that comes from identification. So it's interesting to hear you say this. I love the, the paradox of life. To me, that's the juice of uh, the inquiry into the paradox or into the vacuum in the quantum space is to me where all, where everything is. Everything everything yeah. outside of that vacuum is is some sort of projection like you're suggesting here. So let's drill down to this some more. This is really, really good. When the ego can rest, like we talked about with religion, there's there's the same experience, at least from my projection, that when someone has that level of degree or credentials, like you're saying, accolades, whatever it is, it allows that aspect of themselves to somehow be validated. Therefore, that identity gets strengthened and, th and then it can relax. And I've always joked and said, oh, it's so great that if a Christian or a Catholic or whatever feels better and they're a better person because they believe in something, great. I mean, more power to them. But at the slippery slope again. Anyway, so I'm curious to hear your comment around identity. How do we best hold the highest possibility and still get our I think we still need to be validated as humans at some level? So here's the challenge, I think, with what you're talking about. I think we put a great deal of emphasis on conditional love, unconditional love, 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 love. Anytime something stands for everything, it stands for nothing, in my opinion. I love your website. I love you. I love these socks I have on. You know, I love the sunny day in California. When it stands for everything, it stands for nothing, in my opinion. So I gave a talk at TED it was an international talk. I gave a talk on the masquerade of love. And in that talk, I'm answering your question indirectly. In that talk, I said 1,500 years ago, they told us the earth was the center of the universe, and we believe them. And then 500 years ago, they told us the earth was flat, and we believe that. And now they're telling us that love conquers all, that love is the be-all to end-all. And in my professional opinion, I've traveled all over the world, many, many times around the world, many countries. The number one psychological, emotional need in mankind, cross cultures, cross genders, is not love. It is belonging. Being a member, being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And the crisis in belonging is where somebody invented the idea of love. My father, when he divorced my mother, people say, I never saw him again. I got the perfunctory birthday card every so many years, but I never saw him again. But in his own way, I know he loved me. And I want to say, dude, you didn't belong. You were not a member. He was not interested in your membership. You didn't fit in. And the crisis you have with love is really the crisis of feeling apart, of being a belonging. I think people join churches. They talk a lot about believing in God and they join churches to believe in God and worship in God. I think they join churches to belong as much as they do God. I think being a part of a church, of a music group, of where we think alike and feel alike and experience things alike, I think that probably is as seductive as the idea of God. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying this. It's, it's uh, to hear it from a very trained, well-traveled, intelligent perspective. I, I've been beating that drum for a long time, and I, I, I like to challenge people to actually do some isolation, to strip out all addictions, all distractions, anything that keeps them numbed out or 
numbing out or overly connecting in belonging situations. I think that's another addiction too. I want to really poke around in this with you because this is key. But you see, when you belong, yeah. you've had your answer, you, you've had your questions answered. Yeah, but I, 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 I simply think it can be an addiction to, you know, I get that that one of the primal drivers of the lizard brain, if you will, is the fear of being ostracized, right? Which is essentially the same as belonging, right? Well, uh, that's the fear of rejection. And that yeah. comes into the thinking errors that is more endemic. You know, false beliefs are a problem, but thinking errors are far more endemic. I can give you a few examples if you like. Let a rip. Ice cream. Does ice cream taste good? That is probably my Achilles heel, yes. Do you know the truth is, remember, true or false? The truth is ice cream has never tasted good. Okay, I'm just talking about the truth now. Uh Ice cream tastes moist, it tastes cold, it tastes soft, it tastes creamy, it tastes sweet. And I think somebody thought maybe sweet is good, but they call it good. It's a judgment. It doesn't taste good. It tastes soft, moist, sweet, cold, all that. These same people who believe that ice cream tastes good believe that people take drugs and drink to excess to feel better. That's never been true. And yet I hear treatment people talk about that all the time. People, they drink to feel better. They take drugs to feel better. That's never been true. The truth is people drink to excess and take drugs recreationally and otherwise to feel different. And the issue is, what's wrong with the way you feel without it, that you want to go feel different? You could take your hand and slam it in a drawer and you'd feel different. (laughs) But the point is that we got to deal with the the way life is without drugs. If it's not pleasant, if it's unhealthy and unhappy, then we need to change that rather than change feeling different. It's not better. Some people have the belief that some people have more confidence than other people. Never been true. Some people believe that people, some people or we have trouble paying attention. Never been true. Some people feel that rejection is something that exists and is feared and to be avoided. Rarely, if ever, true. These are thinking errors. And when you peel back the onion, as they say, and you look at the truth, it's amazing how much liberation there is. I'm noticing my scrambling of past thoughts, past beliefs, past identities, whatever you want to call them, being totally scrambled as we're exploring how it's simply our projection or a judgment of something that is everything is like, I'm getting what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're throwing down. It makes perfect sense. I, I almost can't even speak because I'm in this state of inquiry, which is really what we wanted to get to from the beginning of this thing. So I pray that everybody listening is also in a state of inquiry and not in a state of, I already know this. I don't know this. This is wrong. This is bad. This is good. Like, how can we just be in the space that's being created in this conversation? You guys really notice the space and it's in that sort of pattern interrupt or the unscrambling of these neural pathways that we can create true change. And uh, I'm just so appreciative of that, John. Thanks for that. Well, so let me just go another step as an illustration. The idea of paying attention. That's what you were saying to your listeners. Pay close attention to what's happening here. You may not agree. You may feel uncomfortable. You may agree. Okay. I said to you that it's a thinking error that people have trouble paying attention. So I'm giving a lecture on communication and a guy in the front row raises his hand. 
And he said, can you help me? I have trouble paying attention. I said to him, no, you don't. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. He says, you don't even know me. I said, I know, but I know people. I know dynamics. I think what you're saying is that I'm lecturing here and you're not paying attention to what I'm saying. You're paying attention to something else. <laughs> you don't have trouble paying attention. If you have paying, you're having trouble paying attention to me. So why don't you write down where your mind goes whenever you lose track or focus from whatever's happening around you? And that may be some unfinished business you need to take care of because it keeps interfering with what you're trying to accomplish right now. That's really good. But you're always paying attention. Let me tell you about rejection because I think it came up in something I was reading on your website, maybe one of the dragons or something. Rejection rarely happens in human history. And yet, if you listen to the dialogue, people are talking about, oh, I was rejected the other day, and she rejected me, and I got rejected from the job. And I'm, I'm saying here, Brad, that you probably have never met somebody who's been rejected. And you probably have never met somebody who knows somebody who's been rejected. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it doesn't exist at all to the level that we're talking about. Now, what's the opposite of rejection? That's a really good question. Acceptance. That's right. Acceptance. Yeah. Acceptance. So if I accept you, I have something to do with you. If I reject you, I have nothing to do with you, right? If I abuse you, if I talk unkindly to you, if I criticize you, if I don't see you for years, and then I see you again and we talk, am I having anything to do with you? Yes, you're being abusive, you're being horrible, you're being inconsistent. The problem is not that I'm you're not having anything to do with me. The problem is what you're having to do with me, I want to somehow call rejection. It's not rejection. Rejection is having nothing to do with you. Well, I, Your problem is yeah. what I have to do with you. I want to insert this. Definitely something I've struggled with. I mean, of course, I think every human struggles with this feeling of rejection or experience of rejection. And one thing that I am challenged with is overgiving energy sometimes. I've learned that it's a kind of a codependent dynamic, which I'm just exploring in the last like year. Like, oh, well, it just so makes so much sense. So rejection is another false belief, I think, like you're suggesting, or a pattern or something. Yes, false belief. Yeah, it's just a false belief. So thinking, yeah. so thinking error. So thinking error. Thinking error. I love that distinction. It's such a, such a clear distinction. It's a thinking error, false belief. Yeah, that's right. It, it's a thinking error. And so if you can focus, if you can spend time and really kind of take things apart, they disappear on you. Because fear and thinking errors, they require your neglect to exist. Once you put the light of scrutiny on the dark, the dark goes away. The unknown goes away. The fear of rejection no longer exists. You understand what you're you're paying attention to is some maybe some unresolved issues. You well, see what I mean? It, of course, it has to be that. Even though I could say it's my values, it's my principles, it's what I'm committed to, it's what I stand for, for, for people to be of their word, or I'm kind of stealing landmark language a little bit there if anyone's listened or bit done to landmark education, which I've done very little. But I think oftentimes, I'll speak for myself, I'll oftentimes feel rejected or neglected or disrespected somehow. And all of that's a farce. I see people who aren't at all triggered by when somebody doesn't follow through and do do what they say they're going to do. And I'm like, hold on a second. I'm always, this is my always or never thing. 
which is my child, childlike brain saying, I'm always on time. I'm always doing the right thing. I'm always blah, blah, blah. I'm always going to follow through. If I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. And yet I'm still challenged when others aren't, but that's all a farce too. It's just a big bogus projection of some wound, obviously, that there's some unresolved thing in me that if somebody looks at me a certain way or doesn't show up and just totally rejects me or doesn't follow through in some way, I'm wounded by that, which sometimes I do feel that flat out. It's like this, this feels really not okay. I would have gone okay, out of so my, I like, yeah. I like your use of wound rather than ego. For sure. Okay. So I want to talk about the five dragons. Great. Because the five dragons are really about speculation, assumptions, and reading into the thoughts and motives of other people. It's really about the subjectiveness of the mindset rather than the objective mindset. It's the subjective mindset where you read into the thoughts and motives of others through speculation and assumption. Another quick story. A guy comes into my office. He sits down and he says to me, I've listened to you for years on the radio. I've been to your seminars. I think you're the smartest human being I have ever met in my life. How is that possible? And I said to him without a pause, I make it up. He says, what? I'm paying you good money. I've got serious issues. You're telling me you're sitting there making it up? And I said, yeah, most of it. And he says, well, that's not right. And I said, well, think about it. When you come through my door and sit in that chair, most of the stuff you talk to me about is made up. You're making up most of the stuff that we talk about. And if you would just stop making it up, I'll stop making it up. He says, what am I making up? I'll never find love. I'll never find happiness. I'll never have the dream I've, I've always longed for. You're making all this up. And as I looked at the dragon, the five dragons, it looks like post of it's made up. That you'll be found out as an imposter or a fraud. That when you put yourself out there, people won't want what you're offering. That you'll never have the courage to charge what you know you're worth. That your tribe won't get you or understand the difference that you can make for them. And that if you do achieve the dream, you'll be criticized or your personal life will suffer. Now, those dragons are all made up. And here's how you overcome those dragons. Here's how you overcome the speculation and assumption, all that subjective thought of reading into the thoughts and motives of other people. It's called camera rule of thumb. Camera rule of thumb. If you can take a picture of something with a camera, you know it's true. If you can tape record that somebody has actually said this, you know it's true. If you cannot, it is what we call egodystonic thinking, egodystonic ideas. Now we have egosystonic, which are inspirational ideas. You know, I love God. I love my friends. I'm going to do something good today. I'm going to go work out or whatever. Those are egosystonic. Ego-dystonic ideas that pass through all of our lives every day. I'm going to eat a pound of fudge. I'm going to have an affair. I'm going to divorce my wife. I'm going to run off to Dehi. I'm going to kill myself. We have ego-dystonic ideas all the time. And these five dragons are subjective. They are ego-dystonic. And they can be destroyed by the camera rule of thumb. If you cannot take a picture of what they're thinking and the future, and you cannot tape record that anybody has ever said this, then drop it immediately. Do not ruminate. Do not 
cogitate, do not think about it, don't empower them. You know what I mean? I really do. I mean, and I'm, I'm taking it in and listening with uh, the utmost of open curiosity here. And, and, you know, I mean, I absolutely made those up. Everything is made up anyway, right? But that's kind of cliche to say that everything's made up, which it is. Of course it is. But those came from 10 years of being in the transformational leadership space producing. That's the hundreds. place we need to go, right? Right. The so, spiders and bugs. She needs to go to her sister. She's got a sister problem, not a problem. problem. So it's not to say that these issues have no substance. It's just it's not that. It's something else. I, I get where you're going with that, but just just from knowing the industry pretty well, I came to the conclusion of picking what I thought after many, many, many hours of deliberation and running it by people like. What are the main five things that keep messengers kind of stuck? And I came up with those, but the but the irony is this, or the humor in it is this, that they're totally made up. I just, I got to this place of, well, these are what they are. This is what I'm going to say they are. I now have the talking points and it's time to create a conversation with these, whether they're the end all be all truth. That's sort no, of- No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not being critical of these. I know you're not, I, but let, let me finish that thought. That's not the point in creating them. They simply gave me a starting off point to get people into an inquiry, you know? Yeah. So I was recently interviewed on television. They said, John, after being uh, a marriage and family therapist for 40 years, can you tell us the top five marital problems today? Kind of like your top five dragons. I mean, I actually believe these dragons exist in people's minds. I mean, I think these are probably the very popular ideas. But so they said, what's the top five marital problems? And I said, without a pause, there aren't any. I said, give me one. Well, what about somebody who mismanages money or somebody who doesn't communicate or somebody who's abusive or maybe addictive or they don't want sex or whatever else? I said, those aren't marital problems. Those are individual problems that have marital repercussions. And there's too many people in marriage counseling who should be in individual therapy. Ooh. Now, so yeah. people have their top five marital problems, but the truth is something else. And these, these dragons actually do exist in people's minds, just like the idea that some people have more confidence than somebody else. Or, you know, I, I was rejected again. You know, these kind of things, they actually exist in people's minds. But when you start stripping it down, you have these talking points and you get really underneath the surface. You either find it's related to something else or it actually is made up. It's really Camera good. Thought. You can't prove it. It's just an egotistonic thought. There was a movie. You may have seen it. It's called The Beautiful Mind. Not a long time. It's a good one, though. You remember that movie? And that was Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, right. Two- True story of John Nash, a brilliant mind and, and Yale or Harvard. And uh, he uh, saw these people and he saw this, this old child and this, this couple and these people. And we thought because he saw them, they're part of the movie. Only later did we find out he's schizophrenic. He finally gets on medication. He finally realizes the little girl is a delusion because she never grows up after all these years. And uh, he loses his job and all these things. And he goes to back at the end of the movie and tries to get his job back. And he says, can I have my professorship back? And the guy says, do you still see them? And he looks over to the side and there they are. And then he turns around. Here's why that movie is worth the price of admission. A beautiful mind. He says, yes, I still see them, but I know who they are. Interesting. 
false beliefs, thinking errors, made up stuff. We'll need the camera rule of thumb. But what the thing that we hope to gain from your lectures, your website, my talks, is that we begin to recognize who they are and what they are and don't give them power or authority over our lives. Well, it's in the naming and the and the recognition without the taking on ownership that we that we're at at a place of power or possibility of shifting, right? Yeah, that's exactly Beautiful. right. So let's shift really quick here, John. So so how does all of this play into you working with Jim Carrey? How did that come about? What the heck? How did I'm so <laughs> so curious to hear how you guys met and what that story was and how all of your your teachings and past lives and everything kind of led you to work with him and what you guys did. Okay, so so I'm on radio, and I'm getting a lot of exposure, and a guy who decides that he's going to be a director, he works at becoming a wonderful director, probably the best comedy director, biggest box office successes. He comes to me and says, in my first movie, the first movie I've ever done, I have to write a script about a football team who loses their mascot and I've got to find a pet detective. And uh, so he gives me a stack in those days of VHS. He says, find me a pet detective. So I look through the stack. I see this guy from Living Color, Jim Carrey, and I think he has some fresh stuff. And I said, I think it's Jim Carrey. And I guess he gave that same stack to enough people and we all said the same thing. They picked Jim Carrey. So when he's making his first movie, I remember this director has been listening to me on radio, so he knows me very well. And he says, I'd like you to meet him during the first movie. So Jim and I met. I went ahead and, and, and then married him to Lauren Holly, his uh, second wife. And we struck up a 30-year more friendship from that first movie. And we've traveled all over the world. And then he asked me one day, he says, I'm going to start a foundation. I'd like you to head that up. So we talked together. And I asked him, I said, would you like to do wholesale philanthropy or retail philanthropy? He said, what's the difference? I said, you go into a hospital, write a check for somebody who can't afford surgery, that's retail. If you want to do wholesale philanthropy, then you've got to change a village, change a country, change a continent, change the globe. And if you're going to do that, you've got to think of water or agriculture. He decided on agriculture. I, caught, I used to live in Indonesia, so I knew they were doing something down there with rice that was really quite innovative. So I called down to my contacts in Indonesia. That led me to Cornell Agricultural School at Cornell in New York. I called them. I flew out to Chairman Emeritus to meet with Jim and I, and the Chairman Emeritus told me about a French Jesuit priest who, living in Madagascar, uh, had cracked the code on how rice grows. Now, Brad, you've seen, you've seen uh, rice patties? Yes, sir. Okay. For 6,000 years, we've been doing it incorrectly. <laughs> rice is not an aquatic plant. It doesn't like it. It doesn't like water. And 75% of the potential of the plant dies if left in standing water. So the French Jesuit priest, he uses 50% less water, 90% less seed, no use of fertilizer, pesticide, or herbicide, or fertilizer, and he gets 100 to 200% more produce. And so with Jim's funding, in 12 years, we started with 2,300 farmers and grew it to 10 million documented farmers from three countries to 55 countries in 12 years. 
I'm just in awe of that. I'm literally speechless as to where to go next with that. That's incredible. Well, and people don't know, and people don't know these things about Jim Carrey. He never talked about it. He wrote a personal check to invite every agricultural minister in Latin America and the Caribbean to fly in as his guest to Earth University in the middle of the Costa Rica rainforest, Earth University, an organic university. Earth University put us up for five days and we lectured and taught all these agricultural ministers about SRI, System of Rice Intensification. If your listeners and you want to learn more, you go to SRIRice.org, SRIRice.org, and you'll see every country and every peer review research, everything we've done all over the world on that website. We created that website for Cornell. Wow, John, it's incredible. Let's let's dovetail on that. What what else are you up to right now? Uh, in a nutshell, what what are you doing? I know you're massively transforming humans at the at the psychotherapy level. What else you got going on? Well, somebody asked me to describe what I do or what what I'm about, and I said, well, I just understand this. I'm not interested in helping the world, and I'm not interested in helping human beings. And they said that doesn't sound right. I said, I'm interested in changing the world, not helping the world. I'm interested in helping people change their lives, not just help people. I don't work with people who need help. I refused many, many years ago in my private practice to ever help anybody who needs my help. So who do I help? I help people who want my help, not who need it. There's a big difference. You've got to want the help you need. Huge. So... I decided in that disruptive technology, I did, you know, the radio thing. I do my private practice. I did the rice and agriculture thing. And now uh, I'm doing a children's show to raise the next generation of humanitarians, our children. You don't have to wait till you die to give money away and all that stuff. I wanted to grow them from the very ground up to think like humanitarians. So my program is targeted ages three to seven. It's been a nine year effort. And I'm telling the story of causes. Causes already have wonderful stories. We just have to tell their stories through animation, color, music, songs, things like that. And so now I've done the first season of 12 episodes. I have celebrities who are passionate about those causes, national sponsors like Ikea and Microsoft and SanDisk and all that. And I tell the stories. And today we're in 100 million homes a day in America, on PBS and Netflix, and then we're nine countries in the Mideast, and seven in Africa. And it's a, a great thing. Wow, John, that's amazing, buddy. Good work. Where does everybody find you if uh, they want to find out more information about you? You can watch that and go to the website and watch all the things I've told you about. There's an educational curriculum for all teachers about these things. We believe that the kids need to know about hunger in America homelessness in America, autism, and everything else. It just depends on how you tell them. So we develop children speak. If you want to know all about that and you want to see the episodes and tell your kids and grandkids, if you want to see everything I've just told you about, go to the website Mac, M-A-C-K-A-N-D, that's and Moxie, M-O-X-Y.com, MacAndMoxie.com really good name buddy i like it good punch there all right john what's the uh, one final last thing you want to share with everybody here what is that one final thing you want to share well there's there was something that uh, bryce said the ceo of heart math institute he said something and i wanted to 
just to put a little sharper point on it. He said, stressful emotions like fear directly affect the heart, which in turn affect a whole host of systems and functions in the body. And I just wanted to help the viewers know that there's a big difference between feelings and emotions, and that fear belongs to feelings. It doesn't belong to emotions. People use words like counseling and therapy interchangeably. Emotions and feelings are very different. They're like apples and tires. So very briefly, a feeling is like fear, anger, hope, joy, satisfaction. An emotion is a damaged feeling. And when you damage fear, it turns into terror. It turns into phobia. When you damage feelings by not letting them be expressed, when you don't explore your feelings, when you don't understand or keep current with your feelings, you can damage them. You can be shamed into not expressing them. When you damage your feelings, it turns into an emotion. So I would just tell you to know these differences, make these distinctions, differentiate between things and ask questions. You've got all the skills and the abilities if you use them. It's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I have not heard that distinction and there's so many more rabbit holes we can go down to. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is obviously just scratching the surface, John. I hope that we That's can right. continue this conversation. We might need to pull you back on the podcast again to to dissect and, and unpack some of these. There's a lot here. And well, I, you know, I really yeah. like to do is if, if you get people writing you or sending in questions and things like that, we could deal with some of those too if you have me back. You bet. That's really good. So we'll have folks go to the Facebook comments at the bottom of this post. John, thanks again for joining us today, brother. I really, really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks very much. I want to thank our guest for sharing his heart and brilliance with us. Thank you, John Jolief. We're all so grateful for your contribution to the world. You can find out more about John at johnjolief.com. And as we dive deeper into facing your dragon, I want to offer the opportunity for you to discover the number one hidden fear stopping you from earning what you're worth. Be sure to take the one minute quiz at couragequiz.com. And if there's something here I mentioned that you want to review again, keep in mind we keep all the notes for you, including links to everything we've talked about today. You can find the show notes for this episode at faceyourdragon.com forward slash episode 018. And finally, I would like to invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review for the Face Your Dragon podcast by visiting faceyourdragon.com forward slash subscribe. Be sure to share this episode with your tribe on social media if it was useful for you. We'd love that. And join our conversation in the Face Your Dragon Facebook group as we talk more about your greatest fears being the very thing that will set you free. Tune in to episode 19 because I'll be talking with my dear friend and the generous person who introduced me to today's guest, John Ash Kumra with Youngri. Ash has been recognized by the White House and won many awards as a young entrepreneur. He's a sharp fella. Listen in as we discuss how playing in the startup game can surface all of your wounds and patterns to create your divine life and how courage is the answer if you can just dive in. This incredible being and many more on the Face Your Dragon podcast. See you on the next show. And remember, when you face your dragon and take the leap, you will break free. 